to Foolish Tendencies. I'm Gabby. And I'm Kim. And we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moida, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Debunking. There's not going to be as much debunking in tonight's uh, episode. I will give a little spoiler, a little teaser. A taser? Are you going to taser, taser me? <laughs> it's, I'm going to taser other people. Aw, shoot. Don't listen. Like Zach Baggins. I'm just oh, going to taser no. him. That's be great. Threat. Watch it's out. <laughs> Maybe he'll think it's a ghost. Oh, my God. He was, It's a demon. A, de- a demon just tasered me. It actually just told him, I have crushed on you, and it's with a taser. See, I would watch that reality show. <laughs> Let's make Zach it happen. Baggins dates ghosts. Coming I mean, soon to TLC. He should be in the spiritual marriage book. Mm. That's a story for another time. That's a story for another time. Uh, we actually, we just had Crypticon. Yes, Kim uh-huh. did an amazing job. Thank you. It was really fun. It was nice to, you know, see some of my my old uh, oldest and, and dearest Crypticon buddies, uh, Nadia, giving Nadia a little shout out again. Um, but we got to meet uh, some of our amazing listeners. Yes, and we got some little gifts from them too. Thank you so much, guys. Yes, the cutest pin. It's on my bag right now. I've actually already had people comment on it, which is really lovely. And I got a sticker of the pants. Of the pants. Love the pants. I love the pants. And uh, if you found us via Crypticon, welcome. Yes, welcome to the ghoulish tendencies of the weirdos that call themselves us. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a wild ride. It always it's is. It's going to be Mr. Toad's wild ride. Yes. Yes. It's like <laughs> driving as a passenger in my vehicle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, today's episode is going to be a little interesting for me. It's it's my second kind of true crime in a row. I know I've been a little heavy on the true crime. We were talking about this actually before we started recording. Uh, with all of the extra work I've had to do with Crypticon and, and other events, I've kind of pulled from some of my true crime wells. Were there bodies in the wells? Oh, always. Every Duh. every well has a body. That's just a, a given. But uh, this is something that goes against what I normally cover for Ghoulish, which is a fairly recent case. Oh. Yeah, I don't cover recent cases a ton. Um, I'm trying to think the last time I covered actually a recent case. Like, Mary Bell was the 60s. What is recent to you? Mm. Like 80s and up, kind of anything the last 40 years or so is is pretty recent to me. I mean, we covered the Australian cannibal. You covered the Australian cannibal. I did that. That's true. That's my my point, that of the two of us, I am the one less likely to cover a more recent murder, because you also did the the New Orleans murder. I did. I did. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so we did the Rampart Street murder. Um, that was actually one of the first episodes that we've It was one of our really done, early ones, yeah. Which probably God. is not, like, the best quality. <laughs> it's not the best. Uh, no, it's, it's sometimes when somebody's like, oh, you've got a podcast. I can't wait to start listening to it. And I'm like, maybe start with more recent episodes and, like, be forgiving as you work further back. There's just a couple of the ones in the beginning that, like, I think I know I was like super stoked to cover some of the topics and just like went 
too hard or got like interviews. I was like, oh, I should have planned this a little bit better. Well, and just, I mean, even just us figuring out our format and our structure and sound. Sounds weird. Yeah, sound is weird, but also like editing. <laughs> editing. There's yeah, that. no, there's there's definitely there's definitely trial and error involved. And I mean, like you're always kind of learning and improving. But some of those early episodes, I'm like, you know, at some point we should just put some of those early episodes on Patreon. Actually, speaking of Patreon, before we get into this episode, there's some new content oh, yeah. on our Patreon. Um, for Ooh. those of you who are patrons, we actually uploaded oh. some content from the haunted disneyland topic of things that we did not include in the episode but are a little bit of a fun extra add-on for haunted disneyland and there are some new bloops on there so new bloops i still owe uh some updates on a few of my cases that i've been meaning to do oh that's you know what that's one of my more recent ones the the tacoma ones the ones about uh, Point Defiance Park. That's probably around the most That's recent true. case I've covered. Bringing it back. And that was part That was part haunting and that was part... True uh, crime. True crime. But uh, no, I owe some updates to our Patreon. I've gotten a little behind on life. Fair. <laughs> ah. Understandable. But uh, those are still coming. I, I think I mentioned them a couple episodes ago. I have uh, a few of them planned out. So that those will be coming hopefully now that now that things are dying down a little Pun bit. Pun intended. Dying down. Hey. Pun intended. But anywho, not, of, not all of our uh, true crimes that you cover are more modern. So. That's true. No, I, I, I tend to, I really like the more vintage stuff. A little bit of it too. I, you know, it's funny. I do this on the murder tour as well. Um. Because we're talking about cases where people involved, like victims' families involved, could still be alive, there's a little bit for me of a you like. You don't want to joke about it or say something that's like inappropriate or be offended, offensive or anything. You have to, I think you have to treat some of these cases a little bit more carefully. Like, not that I want to be flippant about any murder, but when something happened over 100 years ago, I think it's a little easier to kind of. Divorce yourself from what's going on. I guess Pedro Lopez was more recent too. Okay, ignore everything I'm saying. So this, whole but it's it's bit. <laughs> no, but I I mean like again, I don't regularly cover things that happened from the last couple of years, true. like the last decade, the last two decades, even. Most of what I cover, if I do cover something more recent, is in the 80s. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but we're gonna be talking about another proper serial killer today. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Danny Rowling, oh. the Gainesville Ripper. Oh. Yeah, pretty nasty guy. Before we get going with this case, uh, I do want to give a little bit of a, a, of a trigger warning. We will be talking about not just murder, but we will be talking about some sexual assault and sexual battery. And so, uh, just be forewarned going into this, uh, and if that's something that that you don't feel like you want to listen to, this might be a good episode to to pass on. But uh, I did want to give everybody a heads up what we will be talking about. So on Sunday, August 26 of 1990, Patricia Powell was worried about her daughter, Christina Powell. Christina Powell was 17 years old and had recently graduated from high school. She'd majored in theology. Interesting. Which is, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, my dad had thought about that at one point in time. She worked on the school's literary magazine. She played softball and basketball, was described as a fantastic, fun-loving young woman. 
Uh, she had packed up her things a couple days before. It was going to head to Jacksonville, Florida to attend the University of Florida in Gainesville, which was about 90 minutes away from, from where she'd grown up. The, uh, you, you have family in Florida. I don't, honestly, my knowledge of Florida's geography is like, there's Disney World. Yep. And there's Miami. Those are on opposite sides. Yeah. And there's, I know, weirdly, I know where Fort Myers is because my ex's parents used to live there. So Jacksonville is North Florida. That's like closer to Georgia. Okay. And like, I mean, again, I am not a map, (laughs) but um, I'm not a map. But like Orlando is south of Jacksonville. Okay. Um, so, but it, it is closer. I think it's closer to the east, northeast of Florida. But it's it is closer to Georgia than anything. Okay. So Christina was hoping to study architecture, and she was. This is actually really sweet. She was the first member of her family that was going to pursue a four year degree. Oh, that's nice. I know. It's anytime I read that or I hear about somebody doing that, I'm always like, oh, good for good for you. Um, that's awesome. She wasn't able to get a dorm on campus. They were already filled up. So she'd gotten an apartment with another girl who was going to be attending the university, a girl named Sonia Larson. She had met Sonia over the summer. uh, And Sonia was described as being happy-go-lucky. She was well-liked by those who knew her. She was a National Honors Scholar. Yeah, like, these are just, you know, nice girls. Nice girls who, who... were were well liked, well loved. Um, she wanted to major in education. It looks like so. Christina was the youngest of seven children. Yikes! Yikes! Yeah. Can you imagine too, like just that dynamic? No, I don't know. That is. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Uh, she spoke to her parents August twenty third at about eleven o five p.m. just to let them know, like, hey, you know, made it. I'm safe. Getting settled. Uh, she was going to be living at the Williamsburg Village. It was a very, like, stock apartment name. Sure. They were both really excited to unpack and get settled. I mean, that's so exciting. You know, yeah. you're going to college, your very first apartment. They didn't have a phone installed yet. Uh, this was kind of pre... I mean, there was, I don't know, cell phones in 1990, but it was not I mean, they were common. Really big. They were really big. And... and most people didn't have right. them. Like my mom had a purse phone. I remember that was the size of her purse. Uh, so they used a pay phone nearby to call her folks on Saturday, August 25th, Christina's sister and brother-in-law were supposed to drop off furniture at like 5 PM and they got there and nobody answered the door. Mm. They waited until 9 PM kind of annoyed. They left. Because this was this was really unlike Christina. So it's that combination of like, I'm really annoyed. I stayed here for four hours waiting for my sister. But also maybe a little bit worried. Maybe a little bit worried. This is this is not super normal. So they called in a wellness check, and uh, Christina's parents started driving out to check on them Sunday morning. So Christina's parents got there. They noticed that there was a bunch of notes that had been left on the door, like people had tried stopping by and just, do you remember those oh, days yeah. of like leaving a, a note post-its? on it? Yeah. 
little post-its or we, I had at college, at least in the dorms, I had one of those little like dry erase. Oh, me too. I had a holographic one that looked like it was like hologram mm-hmm. looking and you could write notes like, oh, hey, I stopped by, whatever. Hey, bitch, I stopped by. Uh, so her parents tried knocking. It was unsuccessful. They got one of the maintenance workers to let them in. Maintenance worker called police just to be like, hey, I have to enter this apartment. Can you please come and escort me inside? Sure. That makes sense. No, I, that makes 100% sense for a lot of reasons right. to me. So about 3.45 p.m., Officer Ray Barber arrived at the scene. And like Christina's family, like he knocks, no response. And they couldn't get the master key to work in the front door. And they tried the, the rear door. And again, they're having trouble gaining access. So they, they managed to get in through a third door, which also, P.S., that is a lot of doors. That is a lot of doors. Um, broke it down. And immediately, Officer Barber noticed a smell. Oh, that's bad. That's bad. That's never a good thing. It was the smell of death. So he drew his weapon out. But what he saw really stayed with him. Um, it was a really horrifying sight. It was the body of 18-year-old Sonia Larson. He would later say he'd never seen anything like it before. The maintenance man ran out of the apartment chanting, oh God, oh God, and then threw up on the ground outside. There was blood everywhere. Sonia was nude save for a t-shirt that had been pulled past her breasts. She had stab wounds covering her arms, legs, and chest. The autopsy would later show a total of 11 stab wounds tightly clustered around her right nipple. Jesus. Yeah. Two stab wounds to the left side of her chest. A large incised wound on her left leg that was about 1 to 2.5 inches in length. Her right lung was punctured, as was the right atrium to her heart. My God. Her left lung suffered a deep stab wound, and a two-inch slice of her spleen was completely sliced off. Oh. Like, I can't even fathom that level of carnage being done to another human. Uh, There was swelling on her head, too, that suggested she had been struck. What was notable, though, was that the body was posed. Her arms were stretched upwards above her head. Her legs were spread apart with both feet flat on the floor. There was a large piece of flesh carved from her thigh, deep enough to expose the femur bone underneath. Damn. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, They would find Christina Powell's body downstairs, naked, on the living room floor next to the couch. She had five stab wounds on her upper back. Both of her nipples had been cut off. What? Her neck was bent forward. Her hair had been fanned out, which was another act of posing uh, that seemed to have been done by the killer. Like Sonia, her legs had been spread apart, bent at the knee. Uh, I do want to give a quick shout out to one of the books that I used in my research. It was called A Monster for All Time, The True Story of Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper by J.T. Hunter. Uh, it, it was a very, very thorough look at this case, and a lot of the details I got come from that. Uh The autopsy would later show she had five stab wounds through her back and that two of those stab wounds punctured her right lung. All of that played into her cause of death. She would have remained alive for a few terrifying minutes after she was stabbed. She had 11 stab wounds on her left arm, five wound clusters on her right nipple, and two on the left side of her chest. 
What is a wound cluster? Uh, the best way I can think to describe it is that like a full stab wound going like all the way in and coming out where a wound cluster is almost like God, just tiny stabs, like poking at it almost is the only way I can kind of think to describe it. Like jab, 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 but not penetrating into a full stab. Okay. The, I, God, forgive this analogy, but you know, when people play that game with a knife on their hand and they go between their fingers and it's like a quick jabbing kind of. Yes. It's, I realize the hand gesture I'm making, what it just looked like, and nobody else can see it. Ha ha. But I will never forget it. You'll never forget (laughs) this moment with me, Gabby. You're welcome. Quote unquote, hand jabbing. Hashtag hand jabbing. Um, Gainesville police chief Waylon Clifton would later say of the scene, it was a pretty horrific scene. And I say that having been, before I was a police officer, an embalmer. Oh my God, then that's got to be super bad. Yeah, this isn't just somebody, this isn't just a cop being like, this was really rough. I've seen some bad cases in my time, but this was bad. This is a person who regularly, whose whole job it was, was to deal with dead bodies. And this was, was just something that horrified even him. Now, one of the things that was weird found at the scene was an empty bottle of Dawn liquid dishwashing soap. It was left on a wet towel between her legs. Oh, that's weird. That is weird. Weirder still, the soap coated her vagina. Oh, no. And it looks like this was done to try to eliminate any evidence of semen. There was women's underwear tossed to the side of the body as well as a purse. Uh, The items from both girls' purses had been dumped next to her body. Marks found on both victims indicated they'd been bound at the wrists with tape. And on Sonia, there was tape residue on her mouth. The tape had been removed after the girls were dead. There was also bloody tissue paper around the kitchen. But there was no other signs of disturbance around the apartment other than a photo of one of the girls with a man that had been ripped. All the doors had been deadbolted, uh, which also explained why the master key couldn't work. Because, you know, you can't really. Again, it sucks when I'm making gestures and people can't see the oh so delightful gestures I'm making. Hashtag hand jab. (laughs) <laughs> Hashtag handjab. Uh, there was impressions on the door jam show that the, the killer had been using a screwdriver to force their way inside. The last confirmed moments of the girl's life was from August 23rd when they called home. They purchased some items at Walmart. Eaten dinner at Chili's. This is like as 90s as you can get right here. And like middle of nowhere 90s. Yeah, middle of nowhere 90s. They stopped at a convenience store to get some supplies. Neither girl was seen on August 24th. The neighbor recalled hearing the shower at like 6.30 a.m., which was kind of weird because neither of the girls were known to be early risers. The next-door neighbor also reported hearing George Michael's Faith playing around 10 a.m. Oh, yeah, yeah, for a lot of reasons, oh, no. Oh, no. But this would have been, like, medical examiner confirmed that time of death would have taken prior to this. Police Chief Clifton knew what they were dealing with was not your typical murder. 
quickly called the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to ask for assistance from the agents. Clifton was concerned there would be more bodies coming. I don't think anyone could have predicted how soon that was going to be true. Sure. Because on Monday, August 27th, not even a full 24 hours after Christina and Sonia's bodies were found, a third victim was discovered. That's real quick. That's real quick. 18-year-old Krista Hoyt, who worked part-time as a clerk at the Records Bureau of the... I'm guessing this is Alachua. Alu, Ala, mm, Kim tries to pronounce city names. We're going to go with Alachua. All right. Feel free to correct me, friends. The Alachua County Sheriff's Office. Um, she was a student at Santa Fe Community College. She wanted to be in law enforcement one day herself. Her coworkers were concerned she didn't show up for her midnight shift, which was very much unlike her. At 1.13 a.m., two deputies in the early hours of August 27th were dispatched to her house. It was located less than three miles from where Christina and Sonia lived. That's also very close. It's very close. So they got there, they knocked, no one responded. Doors locked. Building manager shows them around the back, and they could see through the blinds into the house. And what they saw was unimaginable. Um, Krista's headless body was inside. What? Hunched forward on the edge of the bed. Like the other bodies found, the legs were spread apart. There was a pool of blood around her feet. Her head had been severed cleanly from her body and had been placed on the top shelf of a bookshelf nearby, propped upright by a wooden jewelry box, deliberately positioned so the head was viewing its own body. Oh, my God. That's insane. That's so many layers of messed up. Who thinks of that? I mean, this guy. Ugh. It was placed, though, so it was the first thing someone would see when they walked in the apartment. Like, this was done to be shocking. So Krista had stab wounds on her back and her torso had been mutilated. Both of her nipples were cut off. There was a two-inch area of flesh missing from her back. She'd been eviscerated, cut from the pubic bone up to the breastbone, exposing her intestines. Oh, my God. Yeah. The latch on the sliding door was popped off, leading law enforcement to believe the killer may have been waiting for her when she came in. Like Christina and Sonia's crime scene, Krista also had tape marks on her wrist, which had been removed once she'd been murdered. She'd been sexually battered for hours after being murdered. So these details specifically all led law enforcement to believe the murders had to be connected, which I mean, duh. (laughs) I I feel okay. That's, that's maybe a little unfair. I feel bad sometimes, you know, this is, this is not to say law enforcement gets it right because they don't all the time. Sometimes they get it very, very wrong. And sometimes they get it so horrifically wrong. You want to just like punch somebody, but, uh, you know, it's really easy to look back on cases and judge how something was handled when you're in the moment. It's, I'm sure, a very different thing. Yeah, so but gonna... there's missing nipples, man. No, uh, the missing nipples are kind of a dead giveaway that they're probably connected. 
Just saying. Is he making a belt is my question. Oh, you know, I don't know if they ever searched for a nipple belt. Christy and Sonia had been murdered first, then Krista. It also appeared as though Krista's killer had observed her. Before her murder, the gate by her home was open and unlatched, which was notable because she was apparently very meticulous about keeping it closed and latched. The landlord had noticed and told her that it was unlatched the day her body was discovered. Just before noon on August 27th, about a block away from where Krista Hoyt was murdered, a man wearing a ski mask robbed the First Union Bank. A clerk, thinking quickly, threw a red dye pack in with the money, and on his way out, the robber yelled, I kind of love this, have a nice fucking day. (laughs) If I ever rob a bank, I'm going to make sure to yell that on my way out. Have a nice fucking day. I love that that's noted. Like... I just enjoyed that that's included as a detail. Well, I, but I mean, like, that's noticeable, right? They're like, all right, did your, did the robber say anything? Well, he told me to have a nice fucking day. What a considerate human. It's very considerate. So the robber was seen running across the parking lot and, uh, he took his mask off. So police knew they were dealing with a white male. Cause like people saw him take a mask off next morning officers see some men in the woods near where the bank robbery took place and they pursue the men get away but they find a campsite at this campsite they found a bag full of money stained with say it with me folks blood no gabby red red dye red Red rum red dye red Red rum red rum oh i could go for some red rum right now where is some red rum We don't have ADHD, in case you're wondering. What? Squirrel! Shiny thing. (gasps) Where? I want a shiny thing. Mike is a shiny thing. Oh, it is. Ooh, my mic really is a shiny thing. Red rum. Red rum. Red rum. Okay. Red rum. And we're back. (laughs) So finding this red dye made them go like, okay, we've probably found our bank robbers. They also found a gun. And a screwdriver. Oh, screwdriver. Screwdriver, I hardly knew her. What? No, that doesn't work. (laughs) No, it doesn't work, Kim. (laughs) Listen, (laughs) I took the good allergy meds earlier. (laughs) I can tell. You're having a real good time. I'm having a real good time. That's maybe I shouldn't mix those with wine. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's the perfect storm. It's the perfect storm and the final countdown. That's for the bloopers. No, I'm keeping that. (laughs) Okay. Focus fairy. Looking further around the campsite, they also found, I'm going to have you press save on this detail, a tape recorder. Okay. With a cassette tape inside. For those young people at home, a cassette tape (laughs) was like a CD, but shittier quality. For those even younger people at home, a CD was something really shiny that we put in a Discman as opposed to a Walkman. For those of you who don't know what a Discman is, a Discman was a place to play music. Before iPods were a thing. For those of you too young to know what an iPod is, because those aren't really a thing anymore, it was like your iPhone, except all it did was play music. My God, those existed. Those existed. 
This is such an educational podcast. It's, you know, I do what I can. This is like, this is me talking to teenagers on a Saturday morning. (laughs) Across the world, new threats emerge. Man-apes prowl the forests of North America. Giant cephalopods entwine ships in the Pacific. Man-eating crocodiles gnash unsuspecting swimmers in Australia. But one bureau has you covered with the latest on monstrous shenanigans in your backyard. Tune in, gentle listeners, for breaking news fresh from the teletype. Listen closely, for your lives may depend on it. Turn up the volume. It's time for... The uh, they had bigger, more important cases to look at, though, than, than a bank robbery. And there was really no reason to connect a bank robbery to a string of murders. So all this evidence, oh, evidence, evidence, that they found was bagged up and put away. Our killer was not done. On August 28th. Dang. Yeah. So for those tracking at home, this is one day later. Two more bodies were found stabbed to death. 23-year-old Manuel Tabawada and 23-year-old Tracy Pauls. Manuel and Tracy were friends since high school. Tracy liked the security of living with the six foot two, 200 pound Manny. Dang. Yeah. Big boy. Big boy, but also, like, this is not somebody who's easily going to just get taken down. Sure. Their former principal described them as dream kids. Manny, yeah, I know. All of the, I mean, like, I work with, I work with teenagers and, and young people and, uh, just like, they're so excited for their future. They're, they're going to college. College should be a really exciting time to have fun and learn and do stupid shit. So it's, it's, it's just, it's very sad. It's heartbreaking. Manny wanted to be an architect. Tracy wanted to be a lawyer. They had only recently moved into their new apartment. Tracy spoke on the phone with her mother on August 26th. Uh, her mom made mention of the recent murders, because obviously it was all over the news. Sure. She warned Tracy to be careful. Early in the morning on August 27th at about 1.45 a.m., Manny got home. Shortly before 7 a.m., student Tommy Carroll went to Manny and Tracy's apartment in their Gatorwood apartment complex. Gatorwood, that's so Florida. Uh, He was checking in on them. And at this point, we know this routine. A maintenance man let Tommy in when no one responded to the repeated knocks. And when they entered, Tracy's body was immediately visible in the hallway. There was a dark-colored bag beside her head. Tommy and the maintenance worker immediately slammed the door, locked it, and called the police. It only took the police about five minutes to arrive, and they came into the apartment, and the first thing they notice 
the door is suddenly unlocked. The bag on the floor that had been next to Tracy's head was gone. Oh, no. Yeah. So how did that happen? Because when Tommy and the maintenance man went in, you know who was still there? Oh, shoot. Really? Yeah. Damn. Neither of the bodies were mutilated, which also kind of further adds to that notion that the killer was caught mid whatever the fuck he was doing. He didn't have time to finish. He did not have time to finish. Tracy had three stab wounds as well as a light coating of liquid soap on her vaginal area. No. She died from blood loss from the stab wounds. Uh, It would have taken her about two to five minutes to die. You know, and it's, it's, this is an exercise for those of you who are really into true crime, which I support. I'm really into true crime, but I think sometimes uh, it's really easy to stay. I don't know if desensitized is the right word, but um, to not always appreciate like the magnitude of what, of what it actually means when we talk about murder. Oh, for sure. Set a timer for something between two to five minutes and just sit there. It's a lot longer. It's a lot longer. It's the same with, with, you know, a a lot of, a lot of women specifically, um, victims of serial killers are, are strangled. It's not quick. Dying by strangulation again, two to five minutes. Sit there and really feel how long somebody is experiencing that terror to appreciate what it means when we talk about cases like this. Uh, examining the space showed police that the, the killer was able to gain access through the rear door on the second floor, just like the previous murders. Um, the killer forced his way in with a screwdriver. So police are kind of trying to put together a timeline. They know that Tracy spoke on the phone with her mother, August 26. Uh, They know that Manny got home at about 1.45 a.m. They know that around 2.30 a.m., the boyfriend of a neighbor who lived above Tracy and Manny reported hearing a scream. It actually woke him up, but he, he looked around. He didn't see anything, so he went back to sleep. But he did recall that when he had arrived at his girlfriend's around midnight, that there was a white male near the basketball hoops that just seemed to be kind of lingering. That's some shady shit right there. It's some shady shit, but it's also like this is a, you know, it's like a college student apartment. There's people all around people. I just, like think about your dorms. Think about your dorms. Like I'd come home late at night. I come home late at night from rehearsal, from being out. There's people out smoking cigarettes. There's people just out. You don't always. That would be notable to me now as a year old woman. (laughs) (laughs) Like someone just loitering around my apartment building. Yep. That would be some shady shit. I would. I've I've come. I have absolutely come home before and seen somebody lingering outside and not wanted to deal with like a person near my front door and having to keep them from following me in. And so I'll go around uh, the side to, to enter into my garage to, the, to where, where our mailroom entrance is. So it's like, no, it's stuff, though, 
It doesn't like did that kind of thing register with you when you were like 18, 19, 20? No, I actually got no. made fun of by my stepdad for not having enough awareness of my surroundings back then and how heightened my awareness is now. Um, because like he used to be worried about me going out and about when I was younger, thinking I was invincible. And now I'm like, I won't go on a walk at night by myself. Um, very but, like, similar. That's just it. When you're younger, you're, you think you're invincible. Mm-hmm. Or you don't think you're at least going to be affected. No, no, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. You also just don't, <laughs> you don't fully usually know what the world can do yet. That's true. Um, so like people are terrified. It's remembering too. This is not that far removed from another tragedy. It was only a little over twelve years prior that Florida State University, which is about two and a half hours away from Gainesville mm-hmm. in Tallahassee, Florida, experienced their own COVID massacre. Yes, Ted Bundy. Yep broke into a sorority house, attacked four women, killed two of them before fleeing, attacked another young woman who survived, and shortly after abducted, raped, and murdered 12-year-old Kimberly Leach before he was finally caught. And I know it's kind of weird to think about this now, Mm -hmm. but in 1990, this was just 12 years ago. This memory is still pretty fresh in people's minds, and these murders are making national headlines. Police are desperately trying to sort through the details and look for for anything that they have in common, anything that, that they can find to help lead them to the killer. They know that in all the murders, the residents were located near woods. This is notable. Mm. The victims were all displayed. A screwdriver was used to get into the homes. Duct tape was used to bind the victims. Soap was found at the first and third scenes trying to cover up the sexual assault. Yep. For the first two sets of murders, many of the wounds were inflicted post-mortem. There was evidence to suggest that Tracy had been... Evidence. That Tracy had been sexually assaulted before and after her murder. Manny Tobuada's autopsy showed he suffered, brace yourself for this, he had 31 cuts and stabs on his face, body, arms, and right leg. There was a major stab wound on the left side of his chest, 13 stab wounds on his hands. Oh my gosh. What this most likely means is that he was asleep when the killer came in and he woke up when he was first stabbed. He put his hands up in self-defense, which is what led to so many wounds on his arms and hands. Analysis showed the knife used in the murders was a caw bar, which is like a Marine Corps fighting knife. I had to look this up. I didn't know what that actually meant. I saw a picture. I was like, oh, yeah, that kind of knife. So there's tips pouring in. One of the names coming up repeatedly is 19-year-old Ed Humphrey, who had recently, so a young man recently kicked out of the Caterwood Apartments, which is where Tracy and Manny lived. His former roommate said he'd been, this is a quote, acting crazy. Mm. 
what it looks like is that Ed was bipolar and was uh-huh. off his medication. Okay. And it was in the midst of a manic episode. He had a habit, and let this be a lesson to everyone. This is a bad idea if you don't want to look like a serial killer, of putting on military fatigues late at night and going on what he described as stakeouts. What? Yeah, that's a normal, healthy hobby. That's wild. His roommates revealed he'd recently been broken up with by his girlfriend, who bore a resemblance to the female victims. Mm. He was over six feet tall, 230 pounds, knew Tracy, and apparently had a major crush on her, according to those who knew him. One former roommate actually went as far as to say that uh, Ed hated women and that he walked around with a large hunting knife. I'm sorry, what? A hunting knife strapped to his leg. I mean, Terrence walks around with the knife in his pocket most days. Sure, who doesn't? But it's not a hunting knife. Well, I mean, and like, so because when I was researching this, I was like, is this, you know, what a murder suspect looks like? Or is this just like Florida? That's a really good question because... Florida is its own beast. Right? I was like, well, maybe I'm being really judgmental. And this is just like, I don't know if we have very many listeners in Florida. If we do, maybe they can help us out. (laughs) Let us know. Is this just like Florida? You walk around with a fucking hunting knife strapped to yourself? Or is this, I don't know. I I don't want to be stereotypical. Florida's a very, to be fair too, Florida's a really big state. It's very versatile. There's lots of it's different types of people that are there too. There are, there are. So it's, 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 it's sort of like California in that respect yeah. where it's like, you know, there, there's a lot of different types you can kind of hit here. So in the early morning of August 30th, Ed Humphrey was arrested, not for any of the murders at like 2.30 a.m. A deputy responds to a call from Humphrey's 79-year-old grandmother what? who said her grandson attacked her <gasps> in her home. What? Yeah. So he's arrested for assault. He's interviewed and he's like expressing knowledge about the interviews and going as far as to to start showing aspects of another personality named John, who's taking ownership of the murders. So this seems like, oh, OK, cool. We we caught the dude who did it. He's behind bars. Killings have stopped. But. None of this. Is what, Gabby? Evidence. 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 So they can only charge him with the assault on his grandmother. That's say that only. So That's annoying. not an only, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's annoying, but also is it? They don't actually have evidence outside of circumstantial and the fact that he's kind of creepy linking him to these crimes. Fair. Police shouldn't be able to just be like, we think he's guilty. So we're going to hold him because you know what? That's how a bunch of innocent fucking people have ended up on death row. That's true. You're not wrong. Well, I get double not wrong because (laughs) so police are trying real hard because they're like, "Mm, this must be our guy. But you know what they're doing? They're struggling. They're struggle bussing. True crime author Ann Rule. We know Ann Rule. I love Ann Rule. We love Ann Rule. Uh, Arguably one of the most well-known true crime authors. Yeah. She was probably best well-known for the book she wrote on Ted Bundy, The Stranger mm-hmm. Beside Me. Um, 
It's a great book. Yeah. She was interviewed on her thoughts on Edward Humphrey. And this is exactly what she said. They asked, is Humphrey guilty? And she responded, I don't think so. He's too young. I don't think he's sophisticated enough. They don't get to be serial killers if they're stupid. (laughs) So they said, who would mutilate and kill five people and why? And she responded, a sadistic psychopath. This case resembles Bundy's. The killer is saying, look what I did. They want to show the ultimate power they have. They are addicted to murder. Like Bundy, the killer is out of control. Damn. There was also one big piece of evidence evidence that was hard to ignore. The killer sexually assaulted his female victims. This left behind what? Evidence. Well, bodily fluids, yes, which is evidence. evidence. (laughs) Testing led authorities to discover this killer was what's known as a secretor. Oh, no. Not like, I mean, well, like that, but not like that. A secretor means that a person who secretes um, blood group antigens in body fluids, such as saliva and semen. So you can use a semen sample and determine someone's blood type. Oh. Yeah. It's not just dirty, Gabby. Don't give me that look. (laughs) Uh, So they did. And what they found out is that their killer had type B blood. You want to guess what kind of blood Ed Humphrey had? Type B? Type A. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So police put the information of the case into a nationwide system to try to see if there's any hits on similar crimes. They get a hit. On a murder from less than a year prior in Shreveport, Louisiana. Isn't that where True Blood took place? I believe so. I just remember the, like, sexy, sexy Norwegian vampire man, the Viking. Oh, yeah. What was it? Eric Norman. Yeah, he was, yeah. who's in there? What was that? This is a complete tangent. I'm sorry. The the Northman movie, which he stars in. Yes. Uh, uh, is in it. It's the Alexander yeah. Skarsgård. But one of the, I feel like I can't remember if it was a joke that was made or if they were being serious when they were like, this is actually his character's backstory from True Blood. We just can't acknowledge that. It may have last been a name. joke. Northman. Northman. Well, and it's all about this, like, Viking revenge thing. Yeah, it's great. On November 6th of 1989 in Shreveport, Louisiana, eight-year-old Sean Grissom didn't come to school on Monday after staying with his Aunt Julie and Grandfather Tom for the weekend as part of his recent birthday celebration. William Tom Grissom, P.S., I don't know where the Tom nickname comes from. Like, Tom is absolutely not a nickname for William. No. No. But that was what people called him. Sure. 55, divorced, was an AT&T supervisor who lived on Beth Lane in Shreveport's Southern Hills neighborhood. Those who knew him described him as polite, friendly, and respectable. He'd been battling throat cancer for years, but was doing better. He was nearing retirement. His 24-year-old daughter, Julie, was studying marketing at Louisiana State University and was due to graduate soon. Sean's mother had been making multiple calls to police when she was informed he had not come to school. Uh Uh-oh. No one could get a hold of anyone at home. 
at 8.45 a.m., Tom's friend and neighbor, Bob Coyles, went to the home to check in. The front door was locked. He was able to get in by the side door. He started to open it, saw blood, immediately closed the door. And he would later tell the Shreveport Times, we cracked the laundry room door opened and saw it there. I don't know who it was. We just got out of there. I can't imagine, like, going to check on somebody and finding a body. That's traumatizing. It's traumatizing. Tom Grissom's body would be found in the laundry room. It was slumped against the door, blocking the entrance, stabbed multiple times in the chest and back. Eight-year-old Sean would be found face down in the family room with a single stab wound in his back through his chest. Sad. In the bedroom, they would find Julie Grissom. Her body was nude. She had bite marks on her breasts, had been repeatedly slashed and stabbed, and vinegar had been applied to her body. No dish soap? No dish soap. But again, an attempt was made to hide possible assault. Her body was also posed in a sexually suggestive manner. Arms stretched above her head. Her hair fanned out. Ring any bells? Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. The lack of forced entry made police think that the family must have known the killer. They determined the killer had killed sometime between 6 to 8 p.m. that Saturday night. The officer that was sent to Shreveport was convinced these crimes had to have been committed by the same person. But not everyone involved in the task force agreed with this. In fact, a lot of people are still looking at Edward Humphrey being like, nope, nope, nope. This is the person. This is the dude. Which I feel like is so indicative of of one of the big problems when you're dealing with cases like this is that the desire to latch on Mm -hmm. to a suspect And some of it stems from the desire to close a case. And I I get it. You want to find the boogeyman. You want to find the person to point to and say, this is the person that did it. But it isn't always. (laughs) And in this case, it wasn't. Otherwise, another person wouldn't have shown up dead. Exactly. Do you know, um, I have a quick question about uh, the bite marks. Did they ever do like a teeth Mm. check on the bite marks? So, funny you should say that. Oh. Teeth check was hard because of how the bite mark was done. Okay. But Julie had been bitten on the breast, which meant there was saliva. Oh. And since we know our Gainesville killer was a secretor, if it was the same person, they could find out what the blood type was. So they sent the saliva sample to be tested. And it was type B. And police were about to get a really significant break in the case. Cindy Dobbin was vacationing with her family when a story came on the news about the murders in Gainesville. And she immediately thought of a man. Uh A man she knew 
by the name of Danny Rowling. And we're going to talk further about Danny Rowling in the next part of this episode. And this brings us to... Creepy Critics Corner! Creepy Critics Corner! Kim, what are you watching? Well, you know, I was prepping for for Crypticon, and I had nine panels at Crypticon. Yeah, which was which was amazing. Uh, it was it was great to be able to talk, but it it definitely um, it was a lot to prep for in a very short period of time. Sure. So I I rewatched a lot of things I'd seen before, and one or two of these may have popped up in a creepy critics corner. I've 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 given, um, but I I rewatched uh, the original Slumber Party Massacre, which is a favorite of mine. Directed by a woman, and, and it's very much a spoof on your kind of traditional slasher film. Sure. Another one, it's a personal favorite, is a movie called Ravenous, which I may have, have given a shout out before on a creepy critic's corner. I can't really remember. It was a movie made in 1999. It is a Western horror film. There are far too few Western horror films. Uh, it also stars Robert Carlyle, who is a personal favorite actor of mine. Nice. It's really fantastic. It's both like funny in a really messed up way. You've got some like Wendigo things happening Ooh. in the background of it and cannibalism. Fun. Yeah, really fun, really interesting. And one of those films where you're like, this is a really, really good movie and I'm surprised more people don't talk about it or have heard of it. Uh, and another one is um, The Invitation which was directed by Karen Kusama, who also directed Jennifer's Body, Mm -hmm. which I I believe I mentioned in our last Creepy Critics Corner. She's a really prolific um, horror film director, a female horror film director. But The Invitation, like, I'd watched a couple years ago when it first came out. Man, it's tense in the best possible way. It's really interesting. And it kind of goes down a road where you're like, oh, okay, cool, you went there. So I have a whole list. I literally just have a list of female-directed horror films that I rewatched for this panel. Nice. Anyone wants more films, I'm happy to throw some their way. But uh, yeah, man, there's some really, really great female-directed horror that's been made in the last couple decades. So uh, that's a little bit where my brain has been. How about you, Gabby? Um, I haven't seen most of those, so I'm excited to watch them at some point. Again, my struggle bus uh, territory is the fact that my husband does not like horror films. Um, so I have to The invitation might be a good one because it's really, like, it kind of skates that line between thriller and horror a little bit. I love a thriller. Yeah. So that might be probably the easiest sell of all the movies I mentioned. For Terrence. For for Terrence, specifically. Um, yeah, I've heard of it. I just haven't seen it. And it sounds really great. Um, I have been watching, uh, I won't talk about all the trash TV I've been watching because, um, Married at First Sight is addictive and I've got Terrence to get really into it. So I'm very proud that I got someone who has shit talked my trash TV to now want to watch it with me. Uh, so goal achieved. Um, Goal achieved. I'm going to keep that, shit talking some of that shit. The trash that's TV. fine. You can totally keep talking it. 
but that's not what we're here for. Um, there is a new season of Love on the Spectrum Ooh. on Netflix, which is it follows people who are on varieties of the spectrum of autism um, and different types of um, spectrum type situations uh, as they try to form relationships and date. And it is the Ooh. sweetest show. It is the most wholesome thing I have ever seen. Um, it would make you cry in a heartbeat. Uh, I think you would really enjoy it a lot, to be honest. That I already watched all of it and was annoyed that it only had like five or six episodes and was bummed I finished it. The original season took place, I think, in New Zealand or Australia. And so the director came to the U.S. And now this new season is it takes place in the U.S., which is kind of cool. And fun fact, um, there's a speed dating section in one of the uh, episodes in Los Angeles that takes place at a club I used to go to when I was 19 and I recognized Aye. it immediately. Um, but that's not why you should watch it. Um, but it is very good and very sweet. Um, I also found a show on Apple TV uh, that or Apple plus Apple TV. I don't know what it is. Wherever you find Apple shows, it's called the Essex serpent and it's with Claire Danes. And Tom Hiddleston. And Loki. Yeah. Yeah. And it just gives me flashbacks to uh, Crimson Peak because the way Claire Danes looks, looks a lot like the main character in Crimson Peak. Isn't, and isn't he like a priest or something? He, he's a vicar. Oh, so he's not a priest. Okay, that's uh, fine. But yeah, it takes place in like 1800s Victorian London, essentially. Um, and it's got this feeling of lore and legend tied into um, science, which is really cool. So it's very much a bar alley. Um, but basically, there's a lot of townspeople that have this legend and lore that there is this sea serpent that's killing people. And Claire Dane's husband dies in the very first episode. So it's definitely not a spoiler. It's just she's all of a sudden free from the confines of her marriage to, to, to go do what she wants to Best do with people her life. Are. And she always wanted to study like dinosaurs and like just things of the past and archaeology and that kind of stuff. She was really into all that and wanted to pursue it. It was kind of obvious that her husband didn't allow her to do that. So sure. she and her small um, child and uh, maid friend go and explore this town where there are these sightings of a sea serpent and some wild shit starts to happen. Um, people go disappearing. A girl is found dead. Like, it's very eerie. And then as I actually, I'm all caught up. I've seen the first three episodes. And at the end of the third episode, it's a real cliffhanger. And I got very angry that there was not another episode for me to watch. So <laughs> I am officially hooked. It's very good. Uh, you would really like it a lot. I know for no, sure. No, it's, it's on my list to, like, not just watch soon, but to, like, uh, watch in the next, like, week or two. Yeah, you'll really like it a lot. It's very good. Um, nice. So that's that's what I've been watching. Um, we'll have more for you next Creepy Critics Corner. Next Creepy Critics but Corner. Thank you for listening, and thank you for this topic, yeah. Kim. Well done. If you like what we do, check us out on uh, Ghoulish Tendencies com. All of our social medias are on there. All of our show notes. Anywhere you want to find us, just look up Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. We actually have a Patreon. I know we mentioned it um, previously. We got some new stuff up on there. Check it out. Mm -hmm. If you're not a patron, 
please become one. Join us and listen to us be idiots in, in bloopers. It's a good time. Um, but then I have a lot of bloopers. There are quite a few. But there's also some uh, fun additional uh, audio files that are on there, too, that are not just bloopers. So uh-huh. if you want to check it out, check us out on uh, Patreon. And if you like what we do, go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us, please. You can also um, rate us on Spotify as well. Mm-hmm. So thank you for listening. And having said that, stay. stay.